0: Whether you're leading your life or leading a team or organization or a nation, there's no more important time to go deeper in yourself and to recover some of the skill sets that allow you to handle massive and exponential change with a greater level of ease. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host and my work is in the field of leadership Consciousness, leadership and business innovation. And really, it's in the capacity for us to use adversity and use crazy stuff in the world and in life to dig deeper and to become much more fulfilled, much more self-realized through the process, which, of course, adds value to society and the planet as a whole. Also on this program today, I'm, as you regular listeners will know, I often feature a musical track. And so today's program includes a track from pop punk band, Chase Your Words, it's a story I'll tell you at the end of the podcast, but it was a, a fun story. And so the band, the artist own music is donated by the band or contributed by the band for, for you, but that'll be at the end of the program. Today, I'm talking to Wade Davis who is the best-selling author of many outstanding books. He writes like a poet, and I love uh, which is just beautiful. An award-winning anthropologist, ethnobotanist, filmmaker, and photography. And today we're talking about connecting ancient wisdom to leading in complexity. So, Wade, first of all, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Donna. Let's start by talking about what modern-day leaders can learn from ancient navigators about leading in complexity. And just to preface this by saying I was reading The Wayfinders, where... You've given a beautiful description of the training that goes in for the Polynesian navigators. Because these are complex systems these these indigenous peoples lived in. What can modern-day leaders learn from them?
1: Well, I, I think the most important thing for all of us to learn in, in an increasingly connected, globalized, hopefully pluralistic world is... The sort of the central lessons of anthropology, and that is basically that every culture has something to say, and each deserves to be heard. And the curse of humanity, since the dawn of awareness, has been a kind of cultural myopia—the idea that you know my world is the real world, uh, and everybody else is a failed attempt at being me. And um, that's that's a that's kind of a malady, that uh, an illness, if you will that everybody suffered from. I mean, many indigenous tribal names, for example, translate to people, the implication being that the blokes over the hill aren't human beings. And the word barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarous, and one who babbles. And if you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. But the Aztec had exactly the same notion in the Wato. And And this kind of cultural myopia has has really been the the cause of so much conflict in the history of the world. And we live in a very exciting time, a very dire time, but an exciting time in which, in a sense, genetics has finally proven to be true, something that philosophers have always dreamt to be true, and that is that we all are literally brothers and sisters. And I don't mean that in the spirit of hippie ethnography. I mean quite literally studies in the last 20 years of the human genome have left no doubt whatsoever that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race has been exposed as an utter fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth and we're all descendants, in fact, of a relatively small handful of people who originated in Africa, and some of whom left Africa and populated the world some 60,000 years ago. But the really important lesson in all of this is that if we're cut from the same genetic cloth, it means that all human populations, all cultures, if you will, by definition, share the same raw genius, the same intellectual uh, capacity. And whether that genius is expressed in technological wizardry or, by contrast, placed into the challenge of unraveling the complex threads of memory and in a myth is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. Critically, there is no hierarchy in the affairs of culture. There is no evolutionary development, as they believe in the 19th century, where human beings somehow went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London. That very notion has been absolutely debunked by modern science and shown to be an artifact of the 19th century as relevant to our lives today, as a notion that clergymen held in those times that the earth was about 6,000 years old. So in this sort of stunning affirmation of the human spirit and in the connectivity of humanity, Genetics has come to the fore to ironically prove the truth in the central idea of anthropology, which is cultural relativism. And that just means that the world into which you were born is but one model of reality. And the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being what you are. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And and when the peoples of the world answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 different voices of humanity spoken today on Earth. And I think, I think that lesson, which is not yet really filtered into the sort of the zeitgeist of our age, will in time be as significant as the other great scientific uh, revelation of my lifetime, which of course occurred when Apollo went around the dark side of the moon and emerged to see and reveal to all of us for the first time in human experience the fact that the Earth was indeed just a blue planet floating in the velvet void of space. And if that moment of illumination sparked the rise of environmental awareness and a completely different sense of ourselves as inhabitants of this universe, I think similarly this revelation from genetics will liberate us to finally recognize that that racism is fiction and that we all are in this together. And that's a great hope. And so one of the ways that I, during my many years at the National Geographic, tried to address these issues and, in effect, um, attempt in a way to change the way the world viewed and valued culture was to take our huge audience to places where the actual achievements of indigenous people were so dazzling that you couldn't help but ignore and, and, and dismiss their profundity. And one of the places, of course, we went was Polynesia, the greatest cultural sphere ever to be brought into being by the human imagination. And we looked at the great art of wayfinding or navigation. These, after all, were peoples who, 10 centuries before Christ, set out by sail to the rising sun and settled the entire Pacific Ocean. And at a time when European transports, if they even existed, were hugging the shores of continents for fear of the open ocean, we know that the, the ancestors of the Polynesians set sail across the entire Pacific realm, twice the, twice the length of, of width of Canada, for example, the Polynesian Triangle. Triangle. And you asked the question, navigator versus wayfinder. I mean, one of the interesting things about that tradition was that the people didn't navigate from point to point. They didn't set out, for example, from Tahiti to try to sail to Honolulu. They set out from the islands of Tahiti T- T- as a part to find an archipelago aqua- of the Hawaiian islands. And they, and, they, and they found their way through observation and, and, and skill sets that are almost dazzling in their complexity. The most extraordinary thing about the tradition was that it was all based on dead reckoning, which meant you only knew where you were by remembering precisely how you got there. And that implied that over the course of a long oceanic voyage, the Wayfinder had to sit sort of monk-like in the stern of the vessel and literally remember every shift of wind, every shift of of current, every uh, um, um, sign of the sea, the stars, the moon, sun, over the course of a multi-week journey. And... and had to do all of this in a tradition that did not have the written words. So all of this had to be committed to memory. And were that stream of knowledge to be broken, the voyage could end in disaster. So it, it represents sort of a, an achievement that is almost dazzling in sophistication.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important distinction between navigator and wayfinder and particularly relevant to today's world where we've got this confusion between leadership and and positions of authority that we need to separate out and recognize that there are leaders in each of us. But the other part of the skill set that I was impressed by in your description was that wayfinders navigate so sensory, it's such a sensory uh, a highly attuned sensory skill set, and I, I think there's some connection between that skill set and and today.
1: There's an interesting point because you know, you can I could sit here with you, Donna, and deconstruct the the various techniques that they use. Whether it's the way that they measure speed by watching a bit of flotsam move between two struts on the canoe, or whether it's the way that they follow closely the flights of certain kinds of birds that return to land on a specific bearing every evening, whether it's the way that they uh, align the vessel to the rising and the setting sun, the whole nomenclature that they have for colors that the sun makes over water at different times of the day, the way they can look at light over an island versus light over the open ocean. The salinity of the sea, and of course the alignment of the stars, and 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 they use the fact that the the stars uh, break the horizon at the same point every night, but four dif- four minutes different every night during the course of the year. So as long as you can know all the stars in the night sky and know what time they should break on any one evening, you can establish a, a series of sort of guiding stars that you can subtend in the stay of your of your mast and use that as a guiding principle for a certain amount of time each night and then you move to the next star it's extraordinarily com- com- complicated you know i could explain all those individual elements of the of the technology if you will but in doing doing so i would do a disservice to the achievement of the of the Polynesian people because what makes it so remarkable is that it's holistic it's not just that you have to watch a sign of a sea or where the moon is or whatever. You have to do all of this all at the same time, even as you're continuing to file away the information on a moment-by-moment basis in your memory, so you'll never lose that stream of continuity that dead reckoning implies. And I got a very personal and, and uh, visceral sense of this when I sailed on the Hokulea, which is, of course, the the great sacred vessel of the Polynesian Voyaging Society, the kind of prototype for all of these seagoing catamarans that have been built throughout Polynesia as a consequence of a great cultural revival that's underway. But it was when we turned north from Molokai, sailing in a turbulent sea into a dark night, as I was at the sweet paddle, which is really the equipment in the sense of a rudder. There's not strictly a rudder, there's a sweep or that two to three people must man every night. And as that 24-ton vessel uh, lunged into the waves, you know, battered by the wind in the black night, I realized that the real challenge of the navigator, the wayfinder, was being able to take all those streams of information, bombarding him or her at every moment in time, make sense of them all in a kind of a holistic way, and then file them all away as a package of memory that could be drawn upon in in later days. So uh, simply stunning intellectual achievement. And again, you know, evidence of the fact that, you know, we may view technological wizardry as a measure of success. And that always seems to stack the deck in our favor. But if we actually look at indigenous people and the contributions they make in other aspects of human existence, you know, be it social, spiritual, psychological, ecological, they have enormous lessons to teach us.
0: Indeed, and, and this is obviously one of the reasons why you and I are having this conversation because I've I've always found the indigenous wisdom exciting, intriguing, and just the depth of it is just mind blowing. One of the things that I think we can also to learn from from the indigenous people is is about fear because our climate our our media climate is full of fear certainly in business they're used to having everything come out certainly engineering outcomes so that everything is certain and we're a long ways from anything being certain right now we're we're in a state of creating you know reality with whatever emerges in the in the day so how did the the uh indigenous people in the past deal with Fear, for example, when they had no idea where they were, when they were lost, or because there's something I think modern leaders can learn from that.
1: Well, I remember once Minoa Thompson, who's the, one of the key figures in the entire Polynesian voyaging society and the revitalization of the of the wayfinding ways. And the wonderful metaphor in, in Polynesian um, wayfinding is that the the vessel itself, in some sense, is not seen to move. It is like a, it is the Axis Mundi of the world. It sits still. It's seen to sort of sit still as the crew and the navigator pull the islands out of the sea. And so they decided they were going to pull Rapa Nui out of the sea from Hawaii. And that involved uh, a voyage of 6,000 miles crossing the doldrums, tacking into the wind for 2,500 miles, all to reach an island uh, 25 kilometers wide you know, less than a, a degree on a compass had a compass been on board the Hokulea, but of course there was no compass, so only the skills of the wayfinders, these ancient skills. And as they reached the where they thought Rapa Nui would be, they entered a grid and began to tack back and forth until they found the island. And at one point, Nainoa uh, fell asleep and that stream of knowledge was cut. And, you know, he came around he wasn't certain where he was, and he couldn't share that really with the crew for fear of panicking them. And he just, he just thought of what his, his teacher, Mao tse had said to him, that is, if you can see the island in your mind, you'll never be lost. And he had this sort of realization that he already was found because he was on the deck of the Hokulea, which was the island of recovery, what he always called the spaceship of his ancestors. And he just remembered Mao's words, and suddenly a beam of sunlight came out of the clouds onto his shoulder, and intuitively he just followed that beam, and that beam led him right to Rapa Nui. So how that happened, I can't explain, but it's a wonderful example of how in that moment that could have provoked fear, he found a way to find calm. And and again, this is uh, something I've certainly seen in all the many months I've spent in Tibet and throughout the Himalaya, trying to come to terms or understand the, the Buddhist science of the mind. And there there is that sense of, it's not resignation, but of awareness that there are things you can control and things that you cannot control. And if it's something that you cannot control, there is nothing to be done. And if there is something to control, then act. You know, I, I think one of the interesting things is once we once we open our our western minds to the uh, recognition that these other cultures by definition have something to say we can start really deconstructing the way we live i mean for example think for a moment how it is that we in the west treat the natural world that's that that's not something that didn't i mean that didn't just sort of come about in our dna It came about because of a certain way of thinking, and that way of thinking has historical roots that one can understand. So, for example, during the Renaissance and during subsequent years into the Enlightenment, as people in the West sought intellectually to free themselves of the tyranny of absolute faith and and the tyranny, I suppose, of the medieval church, we essentially deanimated the world. And when Descartes said that all existed was mind and material or matter, in a single gesture, he swept away all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, and metaphor until we got to the point where, as Saul Bellows said, science has made a house cleaning of beliefs. But the, the, the worst thing we swept away, in a sense, was our intuitions for metaphor because metaphor is, in fact, how human beings have defined their sense of belonging to their environments forever. I mean, so... In our way of thinking, the idea that the flight of a bird might have meaning is is dismissed as ridiculous. But we forget that that what really drives the human experience is often metaphor. So what do I mean by that? I mean that a a child raised to believe that a mountain is a deity that will direct his destiny uh, will have a profoundly different relationship to that mountain than a child like myself raised to believe that a mountain is simply a pile of rock ready to be mined. You know, I grew up on the coast of British Columbia to believe that the forest existed to be cut. That was the literal foundation of the ideology of scientific forestry that I learned in university and practiced in the woods as a logger. That made me very different in the way I thought about that forest uh, than my friends amongst the Kwakwaka'wakw who believed that those same forests would be boat of uh, hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the cannibal spirits that would be confronted during the Hamlet's initiation. Again, the, the, the key point is not who's right and who's wrong. Is that forest, near cellulose and bored feet? Is it the domain of the spirits? No, the interesting thing is how the belief system itself creates a relationship between the human culture and that natural environment. And that belief system has profoundly different consequences for the ecological footprint of that particular society. So we we tend to when we try to address, for example, how indigenous people view their role as stewards in the environment, we we often sort of invoke hippie ethnography uh, as if to suggest that indigenous people are either closer to nature than we can be, which can sometimes become almost racist in its simplicity, invoking a kind of Rousseauian notion of the noble savage, or we suggest they're somehow more contemplative than we are, almost as if they're rowing in their sensibilities and indigenous people throughout the world are neither weakened by nostalgia nor are they sentimental there's not a lot of room for either emotion in the harsh winds of Tibet or in the the ice of the Arctic but indigenous people have however found a way through time and ritual to kind of create a traditional mystique of the earth that's based not on the idea that they are somehow close to the earth as much as the idea that the earth itself only exists because it's breathed into being by human consciousness, and so in other words, there's this direct symbiotic relationship between human beings and landscape, which has really remarkable consequences in terms of the relationship between indigenous people and the natural world in which they've chosen to live out their destiny. And our way of thinking about the world as being deanimate uh, with you know human beings, with with animals and plants. Uh, just sort of props on a a stage upon which the human drama unfolds is actually highly anomalous and unusual in the realm of human culture. You know, we're the exception, not the rule.
0: You've laid out an intriguing series of relationships there. And I think what I really appreciate about all of that is that fundamentally it comes down to consciousness and the construct of your consciousness, which has to do with your belief system as much as anything values and so forth. But, But certainly we're in the middle of a shift in beliefs or at least an exploration or examination of them, I would hope.
1: Oh, I think, you know, I I, I think one of the things people are always asking me, Donna, if I'm optimistic and uh, maybe they're surprised to see how optimistic I am. But in my lifetime, uh, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay people from the closet to the altar. 40 years ago, getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was considered an environmental victory. Nobody spoke of the biosphere or biodiversity. Now these terms are part of the language of schoolchildren. So we've made enormous progress since that. And much of it, I think, really does trace to these these moments where the entire paradigm shifts. So, you know, the moment when we saw the Earth from space and suddenly the Earth was not a limitless horizon, but a finite orb. Or this revelation I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, where well, we, we really do have demonstrable proof that race is a fiction. It is a fiction, that we all are brothers and sisters. I mean, this is an extraordinary revelation, which has hardly begun. It will still take time to seep into every pore of human awareness. But remember, we're talking about a Western society that as recently as the 1920s, or it's certainly the 1890s, had no word in the English language for what we now call racism. Such was the assumption of the inherent superiority of the white male. So, you know, social change never happens as quickly as we'd like it to. And it happens in fits and starts, as Lord knows we're recognizing today uh, in the United States. But ultimately, it's moving in the direction of a more integrated, more pluralistic a more equitable world, there's no doubt about it.
0: I agree with you. As an explorer and an anthropologist, you've you've definitely entered into new territory, unfamiliar zones, ambiguous situations, as sort of part of the job description. What's your compass in those environments? How do you work with such diverse world views?
1: You know, it's interesting, people often would think that people like myself are somehow swashbuckling our way around the world. Well, you know they what I've always found in the dance of culture, when you encounter a new culture, the skills that, or attitudes that make one welcome as a guest in any culture of the world are not dissimilar to what would make me welcome at your house at Thanksgiving. Good manners, self-deprecating humor, a willingness to pitch in, to eat what's put before me and to sleep where I'm asked to sleep. Uh, I always say that it's empathy and love that allows you to be welcomed. And allows you to go from being a stranger to a guest of the people. And for me, it's something that I've in effect been doing since I was 14 years old and first went to live alone in, in Colombia in 1968. And to me, one of the really great joys of, of travel and certainly one of the joys of anthropology is that that moment where you sort of find yourself dancing with a new culture. And it's a little bit like dancing with a woman for the first time, you don't know quite how it's going to go. You're hoping that things will work out and everybody will have a good time. My experience, of course, is that almost always one does have a good time. I mean, the you know, hospitality is international language. And I, I find that one of the, the wonders of anthropology, or just the wonders of the study of culture, is that even as we celebrate our differences... The fantastic thing is that all human beings face essentially the same adaptive imperative. We all have to give birth. We all have to find ways to consistently couple, to raise our children, to educate our children, to allow our children to come of age. Uh, We all have to deal with the agonies of old age. We have to deal with the inexorable mystery that that death represents. And it's, of course, death that, invariably and how we view death, that determines our metaphysical worldview. And so despite what, what's so fantastic is that we, have, we all share those same challenges, and yet we found so many different ways to, to address those challenges. And, and, and the joy of anthropology is both in our universal commonality and in the, the poetics of our diversity. Those two things go hand in hand, and that's what makes the study of culture so glorious.
0: I love that poetics of diversity because there's a, if diversity is one thing that people wrestle with, they either see it as as the as something that's a fear, something to fear.
1: But the term diversity, you know, has been sort of co-opted by the left to imply, or at least to be seen by the right as to imply set aside affirmative action quotas and so on. That's not what diversity means in an anthropological sense at all. Diversity is the full range of the human imagination brought into being by culture, the full genius of the human imagination brought into being by culture. So, you know, there's absolutely nothing to possibly denigrate about diversity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strength of what we are as a species. It's it's a glory of what we are as a species. There's much to criticize about token set-asides and you know the, the the glib use of the word diversity for political gain but that's a that's a whole different use of the term from what anthropology is all about
0: yeah understood in the first episode of this podcast i had a conversation with Irvin laszlo under about his book what is reality and he also talks about the bifurcation of the humanity system where where linear evolution is collapsing under the weight of complexity and therefore creating a, a split in consciousness as one system fails and this new one emerges. But that new, that gap is where we have the opportunity to co-create better solutions. How can ancient wisdom inform that process of, of bridging the gap, if you will, of consciousness at this point?
1: Well, you know, I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the fascinating, when, when, when we look at the the absolute sea change has occurred in in my lifetime. You know, the chasm that existed between myself and my parents, I'm 63 years old, versus the real dearth of a chasm between myself and my own children. There was this fundamental shift, and as I said, that led to women being liberated from the kitchen. We just forget, and young women in particular tend to forget, what the status of women was. I mean, my mother's life was ruined because of her lack of opportunity. She was a brilliant woman. And one of the reasons so many of us had such great experiences in public school in the 1950s and 60s was, if you think about it, all our teachers are are today running IBM. In the 1950s, the only work a woman could get was either a librarian, a nurse, or a teacher. Just think of the intellectual caliber of that cadre of, female teachers that we all had in elementary school, those of us who are of that age, it's extraordinary. And when I think of the the changes in my lifetime, I grew up not even knowing what a homosexual was. And I somehow emerged from my youth being the least homophobic person I know. How did that happen? And, you know, how did we begin to think of the the earth as a kind of a natural integrated system? You know, how did we actually kind of begin to think of Gaia as a metaphor for this living orb of a planet, which we do know scientifically to be exactly that, a living uh, interactive uh, orb of life. Well, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things about it is that I, I think that the kind of the great cultural divide that we, we see and was manifest in certain ways in the last US election is not necessarily a a divide of of race or class economic opportunity alone, as is often depicted. I I think that a a fundamental element of that culture class was between those individuals who, for whatever reason, were comfortable with the sea change of values and mores that, that occurred in the 1960s and early 70s, versus versus those for whom those changes were deeply threatening, both psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And one of the things that I've always found kind of curious is that when we look at the the ingredients in the recipe of social change that transformed the lives of homosexual men and women that, that liberated women from the drudgery of domestic servitude, in a sense, that that allowed us all as children to begin to look at a mountain in a new way or a forest in a new spirit. You know, one, one of the one ingredients that's always expunged from the record is that tens of millions of us lay prostrate before the gates of awe, having experienced some psychedelic substance. And, you know, when, when Bill Clinton said he famously didn't inhale, you know, I, I'm very happy to say that I'm no particular fan of marijuana and I think it's kind of quite properly called dope and it ruins a lot of parties, even if it's never been implicated once in any form of serious pathology or morbidity or mortality. But, but I am very happy to say that I wouldn't think the way I think I wouldn't write the way I write. I wouldn't put words together the way I put them together. Had I not been fortunate enough to have a, Number of extraordinarily positive experiences with various natural hallucinogens from peyote to San Pedro cactus to yahey and ayahuasca. I remember, you know, in, in the era, all of our parents, in, in, in effect, were constantly saying, you know, don't take these substances, you'll never come back the same. And what they didn't understand is that was a whole bloody point. <laughs> You know, I think I really think if you if you if you look closely at the work of Steve Jobs, if you if you who openly acknowledges the influence of LSD on his on his sort of seminal experiences in life. If you look at the metaphor of the Internet itself, the, the nonlinear, I mean, obviously, the Internet was invented by by the military. I'm not trying to say that it was conceived by people at a at, a, at, a, at but the, the whole sort of new way of thinking of you know almost like mycelia branching of, of the fungal maps that underlie the nutritional regimes of all our forests, that kind of nonlinear thinking is the nonlinear model that the internet's based on. And so I, I mean, I think that when we see these cultural wars erupting so painfully, it's really important that we, we try to find for the other side, if you will, because I, I just think that, it, that in some sense, you know, people fell on two sides of a divide. And we need to, those of us who, and I think quite legitimately, know to be on the side of history. I mean, women are not going to be put back in the kitchen. People who wax nostalgic for the 1950s conveniently forget what it meant to be homosexual in the 1950s to be a pregnant teenager in the 1950s, to be black, Puerto Rican, or Asian in the 1950s. I mean, this was hardly a glory era of of North American history, right? The genie will not be put back in the bottle. But in the meantime, there, there are many people who find these changes profoundly challenging, and they they aren't to be patronized, and they're not to be ignored. And they're not to be indulged, but they are to be understood.
0: Yeah, well said. I know my own, my own efforts to try and, and understand the, 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 the viewpoints and to step in and really get to know them didn't work very well. So I, I, I understand more than I did, but I don't understand quite how to make the bridge you know, connection in real terms. I certainly can in terms of compassion and empathy, but past that, it's, uh, it's, it's tricky. Which leads me to the next question. I mean, I personally have a feeling that the change that we're, we're seeing now is going to accelerate at speeds that will further blow the minds of people that have not actually been able to adjust and adapt, as, as, learn and, and grow. And what's it going to take for the radical global and ecological changes that we have both underway and coming ahead of us to result in, in some stronger sense of harmony, compassion and understanding across all cultures and classes?
1: Well, you know, these are big questions you're asking, of course, and uh, you know, I, I find it almost um, presumptuous for me to be trying to answer some of these. But you know, I, I mean, I, I think we live in a period of disruption, I and mean, we're we're living in a period of of technological innovation of a scale and a, and a, and a speed that is pretty dazzling. There've been other big moments in time, the birth of Engines, the, 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 the development of the radio, telephone, and, and so on. But it's hard to argue that this is not innovation on steroids, if you will. When I think about it, I, I, I'm 63. I wrote my first two books when cutting and pasting literally with scotch tape and scissors. It's hard to imagine. And I, and I think that we're going to see, as traditional structures of the economy in particular are disrupted, it's going to be very difficult for people. I mean, look, you know, we're, we're dealing right now with still a generation, or we're one generation perhaps removed from a time when, in the wake of World War II, the United States made 97% of the world's automobiles, where the automobile industry was confident enough that they could create the Treaty of Detroit that essentially gave us unionized laborers who were able to buy a house, buy a car look after their families with one salary and often buy a cotton on the, on the lake. You know, that, that idea uh, or that time when essentially unskilled labor or, or unsophisticated labor, one might say, could support a family just isn't going to come along again. I mean, we, we've got into this point where even to be lower middle-class, both mother and father have to work. And we forget that that's the sociological equivalent splitting the atom. I mean, You know, we we grew up with this idea of a nuclear family where there was one caregiver at home. Well, that's been blown out of the water, not by women's aspirations, but by family reality that simply to be middle class, you need two incomes to struggle. You know, people are going to have to, um, you know, we still have people hung over. Maybe they didn't experience, but they look back nostalgically to a time when you could go to work for a company know that your son and daughter, if you wanted to work, would get a job with that company and you'd work for that company all of your life and you get your gold watch and you retire and die. You know, that that kind of job security will never happen again. I mean, the millennials are already getting used and expecting to live in a world where where each one of them will do 12 or more types of work in their lifetimes. And increasingly, we're gonna be a knowledge-based society where I mean, in a sense, I, I exemplify that. You know, I I went through gr- a graduate school program at a fine university, Harvard University. I got my PhD, and you know, thirty years before, I suppose it would have been almost automatic that I would have just followed my way on into a profess you know, a teaching uh, and research position at a university as a tenured professor. But but in fact, what I ended up doing was becoming an independent storyteller using a wide range of skill sets from filmmaking to photography to popular writing to public speaking to tell stories across a range of media and stories about any number of things. And I didn't really think of that I was doing anything innovative, but in retrospect, I was in the 19, early 1980s, I was setting out and carving out a career path which is now essentially the only way one can go about the 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 craft of being a writer i mean you can't be a photographer anymore you can't just be a writer. you know you have to have multiple skill sets across various disciplines and that that, that's what gives one freedom and independence and makes one employable and desirable to the marketplace so you know we're living just through a time where the nature of work is completely changed and 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 The one thing we should not be doing, it's reprehensible to be doing, is exploiting the sadness or the fears or the concerns of people caught by this economic and technological transformation and, and giving them the false promise that that world that is gone forever can ever be brought back. And that, to me, is the... Was a great lie of the Trump campaign, and it will be what comes back to to destroy him. Is it, it, that his own base is going to come and realize that the emperor not only has no clothes, but he was a false prophet who who played on their fears and on their misery.
0: Well, and the same could be true for Brexit, because I recall seeing a number of conversations over we just want to go back to 1982, and I thought, whoa, good luck with that. So your point's extremely well taken.
1: Yeah, there's this thing of trying to go, first of all, you can never go back, but also who would want to go back? I mean, we're living on the edge of one of the most exciting eras in human history. Uh, you know, within within my lifetime, there's a very good chance that cancer will be seen as a thing of the past. There's a very good chance that fossil fuels will be seen as a archaic technology well left behind. There's a very good chance that uh, the human population will peak and begin a long decline. There's a very good chance that as we become more and more an urban species, as we passed that famous threshold last year, becoming more urban than rural, think of what that means for the regeneration of, of of habitat around our urban centers. We're going to see this extraordinary ability of the earth to rebound. We'll see our rivers Rejuvenate, you know, we'll, we'll see wildlife, if we're smart, achieve a, a level of sort of respect that will ensure its physical survival. I mean, there's just so many great things that could be on the horizon that, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful time to be alive.
0: Absolutely, and I, I also think the other—you know—the other part of what we've just talked about is that we've been in a more sophisticated relationship with nature in in the past. That's what the indigenous people have shown us. That's what the stories all all explain and share and, and reconnect us to. And so we, we're quite capable of doing this with or without technology.
1: Well, and you know, you know, it's interesting how the some of the evangelical right. Accuse the environmentalists of sort of starting a new religion of the earth. Well, in fact, they're absolutely right That's precisely what we're doing and and it's it's a a religion grounded in awareness of the interconnectivity of all existence and Grounded in the revelation that human beings are not and need not be the dominant uh, element in the equation And if this threatens the worldview that's dying, so be it. That, after all, is a worldview that brought us to this incredible environmental crisis, not just in terms of climate change, but that led to the destruction of habitat in this century at a monumental kind of level.
0: Yeah, exactly. Something that's been that—that's actually what inspired me to do the work I'm doing now. 14 years ago is just to address that—that that breach, that that worldview where we're above and and therefore immune to what happens with nature. To recognize that we're very much a part of it. We've elsewhere on this program we have a J, Jay Bragdon who reports on seven companies that have manage themselves as a living system they know they are part of nature they recognize that and they manage themselves accordingly eventually we're going to see more and more companies regenerate the systems that have been depleted through through poor business practices so that's the vision I hold for this one more question for you Wade if you're up for it sure. okay um, and this is one that came from a colleague of mine in Australia and I so her point was that all over the world different organizations or tribes developed extremely similar practices but but they were never in touch with one another, which sort of activates for me my conversations with Irvin Laszlo on bi-local <laughs> connections. What does this tell us about the true potential for a biosphere consciousness, for our capacity to really think about the whole planet at the same time that we're making a decision locally?
1: Well, I mean I think I mean this gets back to what we were talking about a moment ago where, you know, the fascinating thing about The human experience is the the fact that we all deal with the same imperatives you know and so it shouldn't surprise us that an isolated group in new guinea and another isolated group in western deserts of australia are all sitting around trying to figure out how to make the passing of their grandmother a little bit more comfortable for her you know i mean in other words these are the things we have to deal with and that that's the glory of of being human and this is why, when I mention these revelations of genetics, it's it's pretty extraordinary. Because even when I was a young student, there was a chasm between biology and anthropology, where the biologists tended to view people and indigenous people in particular as part of the problem, and anthropologists couldn't abide what they saw as a misanthropic and elitist attitude of the naturalists. Well, ironically, genetics, which was always suspect to the social anthropologist has come around to prove the truth of Franz Boas's great revelation of cultural relativism. So, you know, it really is true that we're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We all do share the same human genius. And so this idea that any one culture is superior to another is just patently absurd. And and this is pretty significant because it wasn't as long ago as the 1960s where major academics, a place like University of Pennsylvania, where one comes to mind in particular, were still arguing that there were five races of humanity, and still having the nerve to sit, state publicly that the mixing of the races could be bad for the genetic endowment of humanity. I mean, this absolute racist nonsense was promoted from Ivy League universities as recently as the 1960s. So Lord knows we've come a long way and in a single generation, and that if nothing else, it's surely um, cause for great hope.
0: Thank you for being on the program. I really appreciate the insights you've offered. There's lots of different uh, juice here for leaders to draw from, I think, to draw their own set of principles for guiding themselves through complexity today. So thanks very much, Wade, Provided you with a metaphor for how to see the kinds of skill sets that already we have known in our past that we can now apply to... To the today's world and that's probably going to be the best way and the only way that that people that humanity can evolve past the challenges that we currently face my name is donna jones as your host for the program i also do consulting work in the field of business transformation releasing untapped potential particularly focusing on decision making and complexity and being able to widen the lens so you can see the unpredictable and and better anticipate the unintended consequences of decisions. So it's really about systems seeing, perceiving, and at a wider scale, the leadership skills that are required to enable you to navigate the complexity that we're in with a, a greater ease and comfort. I write for the Huffington Post, Great Workplaces. I've written Decision Making for Dummies, which is not actually written for dummies. It is a higher level consciousness book, which is intended to bridge level three survivor-based consciousness to level four to five, which is more transformational and purpose and inspirational driven. I encourage you to take a look. There's a lot of science in there on intuition. So don't be fooled by that title. I, I do speaking and workshops and do I'm happy to collaborate with internal change agents as well, designing some effective change processes that actually function in complexity rather than the old mechanistic approaches, which are based on on linear thinking. You can find more at my website from insighttoaction.com. This episode, I would really appreciate sharing it and providing comments on the podcast. That all helps. Thanks very much.